guys welcome back it's 2023 it's the first show of the new year i'm so excited i have so many exciting things that i am planning for the show in the next few months um firstly i have finally got my patreon up and running i'll leave a link in the episode bio where you can find several tiers of membership uh you can get an episode shout out a monthly newsletter, early access, bonuses. And if you just want to give a one-time monetary donation, that option is also available to you. Um, Any support is always welcome. And it all goes right back into the show. All membership tiers come with a free sticker with more merch to follow in the next few months. I appreciate any support you can give. And as always, a rating is always super, super, super helpful. So whatever platform you listen on, if you can rate it, that would be awesome. I'm also really excited to announce I'm going to start featuring some guests on the show. Uh, My first guest is really exciting and I will reveal it very soon. I had a really nice Christmas. I had the week off. I didn't go home, uh, but it was just, it was really nice just to have a week to myself. I cooked so much food, drank lots of wine. Um, My freezer is still full of leftovers. Uh, Me, my mom and my sister, we always had this uh, Christmas tradition where on Christmas Eve, we would have drinks and like open our presents, except this time, we were all on three different time zones. We got Ireland, New York, and Australia. Uh, so we did a little FaceTime thing, which was really fun. You know, it's nice to have a little staycation every now and again. Uh, unfortunately, uh, in Ireland, the new year came with some horrific news uh, from County Cork. Uh, a young lady called Bruna Fonseca, 28, originally from Brazil, she had only just moved to Ireland last September and she worked as a cleaner at the Mercy Universal Hospital. She was found dead on Sunday, the 1st of January in an apartment on Liberty Street in Cork. Bruna was beaten and strangled shortly after she returned to the apartment in the early hours after celebrating New Year's Eve with friends. The results of a postmortem have not yet been released at the time of recording. The following day, Miller Pacheco, 29, also from Brazil, and Bruno's former partner was charged with her murder. Bruno's sister Isabel said, My sister has always been a very private person with her personal life. Bruno's always been defined as a warrior, a discreet girl, but with very well-defined goals. She was a sister who was always helping those who sought help from her. She was without a doubt the narrative of the family, We still don't know how to deal with her death. No one in the world can imagine going through such a situation. We are living one day at a time. This sad news comes almost exactly one year after the tragic death of Ashley Murphy, which I covered in a previous mini episode. Uh, These stories of violence against women just seem to be getting more and more frequent. It's disturbing, disgusting and so very upsetting. So today's case was apparently a very high profile one in the 80s. Um, So I was surprised not to have heard about it before. Uh, Just to be warned, 
it involves child abuse and the death of a child and the abuse that is described is very graphic so just be aware of that so this is the story of Hedda Nussbaum November 3rd, 1987, Hedda writes, Now I'm safe in this hospital and I can rest. For once I can close my eyes, cuddle into a blanket and fall asleep in a real bed. So what if I'm handcuffed to it? Joel will have both of us out on bail in a few hours. Lisa will be fine and we will get Mitchell back. Everything will be okay. I can always rely on Joel to make things alright again. Hedda Nussbaum was born on August 8th, 1942. She grew up in Washington Heights, New York, where as the youngest in the family, she was coddled and protected. She spent summers in the Catskills where she was allowed to run free as opposed to the city where she had to stay inside and play quietly because her mother had a fear of one of her kids getting hit by a car. She was shy and fearful of new experiences and new people. She became bolder only when she reached her 20s. Joel Steinberg was born on May 25th, 1941 and grew up in the Bronx and Yonkers. His father was an uncommunicative lawyer and his mother ran the show. He was an only child. Hedda first saw Joel Steinberg at a singles party in 1975. He was telling a story to some people and Hedda was captivated by his words and his eyes as he looked at her. She was out with her close friend Risa, who she had lived with previously but now lived across the street from. She'd had three significant previous relationships. One of them, Richie, was what she called emotionally abusive. Her ideas of relationships were very romantic and unrealistic for a 32-year-old. She was a rather shy woman, having come from an overprotective household and was insecure about her abilities and uneasy with competition. She felt her face was pretty, but she didn't like her overweight body. Even years of therapy hadn't helped her with these insecurities. She had been to many singles functions in the New York scene, but this summer house share where she first saw Joel was a first. A guy from the house share called Arthur said that Joel was a top attorney in New York. She was impressed. He said he wasn't here to rent a share in the house, but that he had a sailboat docked in Southampton so he'd be visiting. As she and Risa left, they both said they were in love with Joel, but the next evening Hedda got a call from him. She met him in his office in Lower Manhattan, which greatly impressed her as he showed her around and mentioned his well-known clients. They went to a restaurant of one of his clients where the owner's wife said she always sees him with a different woman on his arm. This didn't surprise Tedda. She found his chat to be humorous and exciting and he also really listened to her. She felt relaxed. He said he had to go home and walk his dog. She knew it was a line, but anyway, she went and was impressed by his brownstone, which on a plaque outside said was formerly occupied by Mark Twain. After several hours of talking and kissing, she suggested they go to bed. During the next three weeks, she saw a lot of Joel. She remembers their enthralling conversations the most. He told her stories of his mafia boss clients, of growing up in the Bronx and Yonkers. He wanted another sibling more than anything. His mother kept telling him it was his father who didn't want another child, but Joel said this wasn't true. What a liar she was and is. She was the one who didn't want more children because kids would tie her down. She wanted to be free to play golf, to swim, to do whatever she wanted. What a liar, putting the blame on my father. No matter how sweet she seems, don't believe a word, she says. This, to me, uh, sounds very familiar. My ex... Uh, he hero worshipped his father and 
you just used to speak so disgustingly about his mother that you know looking black looking back that's like major red flags um i feel like no matter what you know kind of relationship you have with your mother like speaking like that about her just kind of turns my stomach a little bit Joel also spoke about his years in the Air Force and the Defense Intelligence Agency. He went to Fordham University and New York University Law School. But he also listened with interest to her. She felt comfortable talking about anything with him. Hedda was an associate editor of children's nonfiction books at Random House. She loved her job. She told him all about her childhood, therapy sessions and past relationships. Joel told how he loved his ex's little girl Dawn and used to call her once in a while until her mother remarried. He portrayed his last lover as a nut who was great in bed. This didn't help Hedda's confidence and she felt she'd never live up to her. He was everything she wanted in a man, intelligent, witty, energetic, charming and an excellent lover. But she told her therapist he wouldn't take no for an answer and gave gave the example of her cancelling a therapy session because he wanted to take her to dinner And she did, even though she didn't want to. He wanted to see her every evening, but she felt that that was too much too soon for her. In the beginning, she had felt complimented by his attention and eagerness to see her, but now she was starting to feel pushed. He was too insistent and always persuaded her when she refused anything. However, she blamed herself for being too easily led and that it wasn't his fault. Her therapist told her to weigh the positives against the negatives. The negatives won and she broke up with him. One weekend, he showed up at the summer house supposedly to see Arthur. She tried to resist, but later that night she ended up sleeping with him at his motel. They were back together. Life was always exciting with Joel. People were always coming and going from his house. Clients, friends, mafia bosses, drug dealers, doctors. And to a rather shy woman who had always lived a quiet life, but dreamed of being more sociable, this was a dream come true. He also seemed to have an abundance of money and loved to treat her. He even had her attend business dinners with important clients where he talked her up and encouraged her to speak. He always insisted they never keep anything from each other. She liked the idea of having no secrets. So here you can really see the beginnings of love bombing. He's really attentive. He's talking her up to people. You know, he's making her seem really important in his life. Um... And for somebody who she says she was so such a lonely child and she was um, really shy, you know, this is obviously all new to her and she's loving this and thinking, oh, wow, somebody finally sees me for what I am. So it's got all the classic early signs of an abuser. Hedda came home one day to an unusually silent and depressed Joel. He told her how Dawn, the little girl of his ex, was dead. She died in a house fire on New Year's Eve. He said now more than ever he wanted children of his own. Hedda knew it was too soon to commit this much, but they were about to move in together. Once they were living together, Joel began teaching her things and helping her in different ways with her life, such as showing her different ways to DIY the home, helping her figure out her book dedication, and also helping her with her clothes. He taught her how to dress in a more elegant way and about the quality of silk and the colours she should wear. He even helped her get better at sports and games, which she was never good at. Her love for him grew and grew. One negative thing was that he talked a lot about his ex, Rona. Even though a lot of it was negative, it was clear she was still on his mind. One day, she got suspicious that he was seeing her again and she confronted him. He admitted he was. He said he needed to really prove that she was part of his past by trying again with her. 
Hedda accepted it, but it also made her really insecure and she worried that he would stay with Rona. Then one night he came home fuming, saying he had seen Rona getting into a car with a man he knew. He said now he knew it was really over and he was only committed to Hedda. I mean, it just goes to show her insecurity that, you know, she was willing to let him go and make up his mind who he preferred between the two, whereas, like, all he wanted to do was have his cake and eat it. Hedda said that her first victim of intimate terrorism was her beloved English china teapot. One night during one of their long conversations, Joel became angry with her, but she had no idea why. He told her to pack her bag and go to a hotel for the night. She was in shock and panic. Her old feelings of separation anxiety cropped up. She couldn't lose him. She packed her bag and was about to leave when he called her into the kitchen. He had her teapot, a possession he knew meant a lot to her, and said she better take it with her. She thought taking it would be a sign of permanent separation from him, and so when he handed it to her, she allowed it to fall to the floor. She never ended up at the hotel, and Joel told her later that he only wanted her to take it because he felt like he would have done some damage to it. She wondered if this was his way of telling her he could be violent. But she was just glad he hadn't kicked her out. So Joel got the reaction he'd wanted with his test. He knew now he could manipulate her, and she couldn't resist. And this is one of these things I've talked about before, you know, they will, no abuser is like abusive right up front. They want to wait and see, they want to do all the love bombing and then like slowly introduce something like this incident with the teapot, see how far, you know, their person can be manipulated, pushed, controlled. And once they know that they can do that to that person you know, then the abuse really starts. But they're not going to do that to a person who's going to be like, oh, you broke my teapot on purpose? Okay, bye, and everyone to see you again. They're, you know, they're, that's their test. They want to know that this is a person that will forgive me for doing something and now I know I can control them. He also started to become critical of her. He always complained she was tense and needed to relax and that she needed to let go more in bed. He always denied it was criticism, saying the criticism was negative and that what he was doing was trying to help her. When she first moved in with him, she stopped making time with friends as she felt she should be spending all of her free time with him. But he encouraged her to hang out with them. He even started to hang out with them too, although this gave him more time to observe their less favourable traits, which he repeatedly highlighted. He would say they were selfish and that she deserved friends that would build her up. These tended to be traits that she did see in her friends, but she chose to focus on the positives. After so many times of hearing these things, she began to be persuaded, ignoring the fact that they were kind and caring, and so out they went. And this is another uh, common thing that happens to, they'll start to point out things that they don't like in your friends and slowly try to manipulate you into the same way of thinking until you're convinced that they're not a good person and you need to cut them out of their life out of your life they had now been together for two years and while she began to love him more and more he would oftentimes change from saying i love you to you don't want to grow you want me to take care of you you don't want to give you just want to take she knew she was trying hard to change and to please joel he was even giving her training on being better at social events they went to a party one night and on the two-hour drive home he critiqued her behavior step by step how had he been enjoying himself when he had so obviously spent the night watching her and her behaviour? He began to hold critiquing sessions for her every single night. She felt so inadequate. They could last for hours. 
He went through a phase of drinking to excess at parties and dinners and gave her the responsibility of stopping him when he'd had enough. However, if he ended up drinking too much, he would then blame her for being too distracted to keep an eye on him. On these nights, he would make himself vomit up all the alcohol. One night, a client insisted on putting them up in a hotel for the night as Joel had had too much to drink to drive home. However, he insisted he could drive and the client gave up trying to persuade him. A friend of his told him he didn't look good and as he was a doctor, he had some tests done on him. Turns out he had arrhythmia, so he had to stop smoking, drinking coffee and alcohol and get lots of exercise. He took it very seriously and managed to stop cold turkey. He, however, cut down but didn't quite stop drinking and found it very hard to exercise. In March 1977, they went to her nephew's bar mitzvah. She was so proud when Joel seemed to charm her family and they were impressed at his devotion to her. It made up for the fact that Joel had managed to persuade her to miss the service itself and only go to the party. In spring 1977, they bought a house in the New Rochelle Larchmont border. They decided this time to have a baby together, but life didn't turn out how they wanted. Firstly, Joel started seeing other women, but he was open about it with her. He said it was because she didn't satisfy him sexually, so he needed a woman who could fulfill him in bed, but she felt like she couldn't blame him because he was being honest with her. But as much as he was honest with her, she would continually hear him on the phone telling clients and friends tall tales. She'd tell him he shouldn't tell lies. He said sometimes a little untruth didn't do any harm and he needed to do it sometimes for business purposes. So as time passed, she came to accept his exaggerations and even corroborated his fabrications. This is something my ex used to do also. He was constantly exaggerating. He always had to be better than everybody else. He had to have a bigger, better story. Um, so this is another common thing with narcissists. It's just something that they do to make themselves look good. People only ever either despised or adored Joel and he kept people around who adored him. One of Hedda's friends, Barbara, seemed to really like him and so she was allowed to keep her around. He even got her in on his lies and exaggerations. He would introduce her as being higher up in her job than she was. Hedda believed he had a desperate need to feel that those surrounding him would impress others as much as he did. He also began pushing her to get promotions at her job. She ended up getting promoted to editor and gave all the credit to him for convincing her to ask for it. The first time Joel hit her, she had no idea what even led to it. He hit her in the eye with the heel of his hand and then he embraced her. She felt that meant that he was sorry, even though he never actually said the words. She thought it was a fluke and that it wouldn't ever happen again. The next day, she woke for work with a black eye and a cut underneath it. She wondered how she could go in looking like that. Joel said she didn't have to tell them anything. She didn't know anybody in explanation. It was her business. She ended up telling her co-workers that she'd been mugged. This is one of those things where, you know, looking back, it's like the first lie that you tell to cover up for your abuser is, you know, such a telltale sign for yourself if I'm lying to cover up for something that they've done you know it just goes to show that what is happening is wrong but you're just so in denial you're just not even in anywhere near a place where you're thinking you're being abused and this is wrong um but if you think about it if you're lying to cover for someone's behavior it's never good A few days later, she began to start seeing flashes in the eye that he had hit. She went to the company nurse who advised her to go to the ER. 
She told the female doctor that her boyfriend had hit her. She immediately regretted it when she saw her write it on the report. She didn't want Joel to get in trouble. She asked her to cross it out and she did. Years later, when she looked at a copy of the report, she could still clearly see the words barely scribbled out and wondered why it was never followed up on. But it was 1978 and the battered women's movement was only just starting. If you had told Hedda a few years earlier she would stay with someone who hit her, she wouldn't have believed you. She says, When the reality of the situation faces us, we don't act in such idealistic ways. Love often interferes with reason, and because of my intense feelings for Joel, I dealt with the circumstances in a way that may seem mystifying. I now think about what I did like this. I put the incident in a drawer in the back of my mind and shut the drawer, and there the incident stayed for a long, long time. This is something that will sound very familiar to anybody who has been in the same situation. They continued life as usual, going to parties and on holidays. Not much changed in their relationship, but she continued to focus on all the things he did to help her. She was sure after that first time that he would never hit her again, but he soon did. The incidents were usually momentary, one hit with the heel of his hand. She would never know why. She would often have black eyes. She still thought little of it and had no plans to leave him. After the first time, she stayed home from work whenever she had a black eye, two weeks each time. But Joel would still insist she go in. He said, as he had before, that she owed them no explanations. She knew she couldn't say she was mugged again, so she used several excuses like she was horse riding or she walked into a door. She assumed that everyone accepted her explanations. No one ever questioned her. It was only nine years later that everyone in the Random House department said they had always known about his abuse. Hedda was trying desperately to get pregnant. It was two years and there still was no sign of it happening. She went to a doctor. Joel insisted the problem had to be hers as he had perfect sperm. He kept finding ways out of getting tested even when all of Hedda's tests were negative. It was only years later he did a test and his sperm count was low. She felt he knew this all along and just didn't want to be seen as the one with the problem. One day in her office, her receptionist told her Charlie Schultz, creator of the Peanuts characters, was there to see her. She had never met him personally, but had edited books that his characters were in. She went out excitedly, only to find Joel. He said, Just as I thought, you came right out for Schultz, though you usually make me sit here forever. He didn't like to be ignored. He liked to be number one always. She'd always been uncomfortable having him at her office because she felt his aggressiveness seemed out of place in such a calm environment and that his friendly but overbearing chats weren't appreciated by the other editors. I totally understand this. This brings back so many memories for me. I used to hate situations where my ex was in either like, you know, around groups of my friends because he would like exaggerate and I'll be like sometimes thinking oh are they just like I could tell by their face you don't even know your friends so well and I could tell by their faces sometimes like you know they're nodding and smiling but I can see in their eyes they're like this guy is full of shit and then you know he would often show up to my work which like wasn't you know it was really frowned upon in my job and I would just be so embarrassed because I would be like you know it would never be for any good reason and I don't know something about it used to just make me cringe just hearing him talking to everybody it used to be really embarrassing I'm somebody anyway who likes to keep my personal life and my work life very separate like I don't like to combine the two I don't like anybody showing up my job I don't like 
you know, really telling anybody at work about what's going on with me. Um, so I always just, oh, I just always hated it. It just makes me cringe. So when I hear her say this, I know exactly what she means. They went out for lunch where Joel insisted she put it on her expense account. She said it wasn't ethical. He got annoyed and continually insisted and said by the end of the month, he would have her charging all of her meals to the expense account. She finally gave in. Joel would frequently lie, exaggerate and aggrandize. He would do things like put cheap liquor into expensive bottles and then serve them to his guests while they praised the beautiful drinks. He was very stingy. He even insisted on her cutting his hair. He would berate her the whole way through, so she hated doing it. One time she put the scissors down as he kept telling her she was holding it wrong and he punched her in the arm. After some time of still not getting pregnant, Joel suggested adoption. His good friend and Hedda's OBGYN Mike had many clients who were pregnant but didn't want their babies. He currently had an Italian patient with dark colouring like theirs who Mike thought would be perfect for them, but she wasn't ready and they passed. In February 1981, Joel gave her her first full beating. He hadn't seemed any angrier than usual. He kept pounding on her lower back over and over in the same spot where she lay on the floor. Fortunately, the doorbell rang. He calmly brought his two clients into the living room while she tried to get herself together in the bathroom. She then joined them on the couch. The pain seemed to be getting worse, but she tried to focus on the good aspects of their relationship and on work. After they left, she and Joel carried on as if nothing had happened. She felt relieved. It's so wild to think that, like, something crazy, like, you literally getting beaten up and then someone comes to the door and your abuser can just switch and just turn on the charm just like that, just like nothing happened. And then for you yourself who's being abused, you can also do the same. You can go from, like, literally being in so much pain, having something so horrendous happen to you and just, like, pull it together in an instant it's just so wild to think about. At 6am, she decided she needed to get to the hospital. She managed to get to the street, but it was too painful to walk, so she managed to hail a cab. At midnight, they said they had to remove her spleen. She wanted a second opinion. He told her she didn't have time. When she called Joel that morning to tell him where she was, he had been so sweet to her. He told her not to worry. He got her a good surgeon he knew through a friend. She felt again that he was her hero and not her abuser. He was attentive and supportive throughout her recovery. She protected him from being blamed for her injury. The doctor asked her if the man who had done this to her had at least come to visit her. She said no, as Joel had already been there and she didn't want him knowing it was him. Once they got home, they had the honeymoon period where there was no violence and he treated her like a princess. She thought it was last forever. He did manage to persuade her that the resident doctor had done a messy job checking for internal bleeding and had left her with a scar which she should sue for. A month or so after she came home from the hospital, Joel tried to convince her again that they should adopt. This time she agreed. She was almost 39 and time was getting short. So in the spring of 1981, he met with 17-year-old Michelle Launders. She believed Joel would be a fantastic father. After meeting Michelle, Joel said she was an attractive young woman, even while pregnant, so they had a good chance of the baby being good-looking. She said the father was an athlete, which was important to him as he wanted a well-coordinated child so they could play football and basketball together. She also didn't mind which religion they raised the child. Everything seemed just right. She believed every word he told her. But Michelle's version of that meeting differs. She said she insisted on two things. One, that the couple is married and two, that they are Catholic. Hedda said she had known that this would have tried to 
If she had known this, they would have tried to stop the adoption, but at the same time, she knows Joel would have convinced her otherwise. When Hedda announced at work that she was adopting a baby, another senior editor, Jenna, pulled her aside and asked, who's going to protect this child from Joel's abusive behaviour? Hedda was outraged. It offended her so much, she didn't even respond. On May 14th, 1981, a baby girl was born. The next day, Mike and his wife showed up at their place with the baby. It was the happiest moment of her life. They named her Elizabeth Aaron Steinberg, Lisa. She loved every moment of being a new mother despite getting very little sleep. Joel bragged to everyone that they took turns getting up for night feeds, but that wasn't true. He only changed a total of two diapers the whole time. But his behaviour towards Hedda was impeccable at this time. He was loving and supportive and never aggressive. It was another honeymoon period and it lasted a total of six months. When Lisa was three months old, she had colic. She would cry all day and it was very distressing for Hedda. Fortunately, it only lasted a few weeks. She would sing Lisa lullabies when she put her down for the night, something that became a ritual for her. After three months of maternity leave, she decided to work from home and only go to the office from time to time. On these days, Joel would take care of her, which he didn't like. He said she should be able to take the baby into the office with her. So she gave it a try as he once again convinced her. The secretaries loved coming into play with her and she rarely cried. But the random house managers felt they were being too distracted and would prefer it if she didn't bring her in. She learned of a daycare playgroup where she could take Lisa while she worked. She decided to go back to the office full time as she had taken as much time off from work as she could. At about this time, the best period of her life ended. She would never again be free from abuse, happily employed, close with her family and daughter all at the same time. It was apparent the postpartum honeymoon period had ended when he hit her again. One night, while they were having one of their talks and feeling extremely close to him, Hedda broached the subject. Joel, I hate it when you hit me. It's painful, it's embarrassing, and it makes me feel you don't love me, and I know you do. He responded, of course I do. I hate myself when I hit you. It's not me, I'm not really like that. This would be the first and last time they ever discussed the abuse, and very slowly the, bu- the abuse began to escalate. Lisa turned a year old, yet Joel still hadn't had the official adoption papers drawn up, something Hedda desperately wanted him to do. He soon began trying to tear down the child's nanny, Patty. First, he said she was a lesbian. Then he said his ESP, that is extrasensory perception, told him she was a child molester and would explicitly describe scenes in which she would do things to the child in the bathtub. Hedda found this hard to believe as she was such a caring woman. But she had come to trust Joel's ESP. She had always had a fascination with things like ESP and reincarnation. And when she told Joel of this, that's when he suddenly started to claim he had paranormal powers. He would often demonstrate it, it, such as telling her one time to check around a corner of the street where she would find something she liked. She found a window shade in a trash can just the size she needed. Then he started to say that although he didn't like to boast about it, he was also a healer. He even claimed to have gotten rid of Hedda's chronic neck and shoulder pain. Joel's friend Mike, who had aided their adoption and was still Hedda's gynecologist, died a few weeks later. Years later. Another doctor, Peter, took over and Joel befriended him also. He liked to befriend people who could do him favours. Hedda and Joel would still occasionally take cocaine and one day their friend taught them how to make the drug themselves the simple way. They had first started cooking it occasionally at night when Lisa was already asleep, 
Then Joel said he felt they communicated well when they smoked, so he wanted them to do it more frequently. During these so-called therapy sessions, he would advise Hedda and say as usual that he was trying to help her. He said her problems included her stubborn rebelliousness, her inability to let go and her inability to live in truth. One day, Hedda got a call from her sister who said Anne from Random House had called her saying Joel was controlling her life, that she was in danger and that Judy had better get her and Lisa out of his house as soon as possible. Hedda said that was absurd and she didn't know what she was talking about. Judy said that's what she thought and wondered why she would make something up like that. Even though Hedda knew why Anne had come to these conclusions, she was still in denial about the abuse. She thought, what a terrible thing to say about Joel. She has no idea how incredibly wonderful he is, how he inspires me, helps me grow and is a perfect parent to Lisa. She couldn't wait to tell Joel what had happened. He was clearly angry and said she was clearly the type of person who had to try to help people even when they didn't need it. He said she was probably just upset she hadn't invited her to the baby shower. He wondered what Judy had done while Anne told her these things. Hedda said Judy had listened to her. Joel said your own sister didn't even stand behind you and defend you from these awful accusations and you think you can rely on her? Some sister she is. How could she allow a woman like Anne to say such things about you? And again, he here is trying to use this opportunity to turn her own sister against her and therefore make her even more isolated. The next time Hedda saw just... She can... Excuse me. The next time Hedda saw Judy, she confronted her angrily. How could you let something like this go unchallenged? You've betrayed me by listening to that crazy woman. Joel is a wonderful, caring partner. You know that and you know how much I love him. Her sister agreed with her, but years later she told Hedda that she knew Joel was controlling, but that if Hedda was okay with that, then she had been okay to go along with it also. But Joel couldn't be happy with Judy now that her view of him had been tainted. So began stories from him of Judy's drug taking. He said she was a major user who would do anything for drugs, that she would betray Hedda if she wasn't careful. Seeds of doubt had now been planted, one more step closer to her total isolation. Hedda was no longer happy with Lisa being in Patty's care and so she hired a nanny called Annie. She had her own child also, so she would take care of them both in her own home. Hedda loved her job, but Joel would often find pathetic excuses in order for her to stay home. Excuses such as her having to type up a letter for him immediately or him having to wear the one pair of pants that needed hemming. And when Hedda would object, he would ask why she was still so worried about getting to work on time, that she was an executive and could come and go as she pleased and should grow up. She would wonder what was wrong with her. As she suspected, her superiors were unhappy about her irregular hours and frequently missed work days. A black eye usually caused her to stay home for a week at a time as she knew she couldn't show up anymore with another excuse. Then she got a warning. They told her she could take a leave of absence or else be here every day and on time. She promised she would. But in late July 1982, Joel gave her another black eye and she had to take another two weeks off. She thought it would be okay as her boss was on vacation. However, when her boss learned she'd been out the whole time she was away, she told Hedda she had to let her go. It was hardly a surprise, but at the same time, she was stunned. But they did offer her some freelance work. She was extremely grateful, even when she realised Anne would be who she was working with. And again, Anne is the lady who had called her sister Judy to tell her that Joel was abusive. 
After some time working freelance and also being Joel's unpaid secretary, he convinced her she was too intensely concentrated on her work. It worked, and she became distracted from her assignments. Then one night, she couldn't find some papers from an assignment she needed for the following day. Joel admitted he had hidden them. He wouldn't tell her where they were and said she'd find them herself. Ignoring her desperate need for them, he went to sleep. She finally found them hours later. Another day, he tore up some pages she was working on and threw them out of the window. A vice president in her department, who she had always gotten along well with, suddenly started treating her differently. He accused her of stealing a book. Joel blamed Anne, saying it had to have been her, but now years later, Hedda believes it was Joel who was somehow involved. After that, Random House gave her no more freelance jobs. So she's now been isolated from her friends, from her sister and from her job. Joel gave her the unofficial job of making sure he was well fed and stayed fit. One night he came home from racquetball and yelled at her that in the dressing room his friend had said he looked anorexic. Joel said she had deliberately done that to him. She had starved him so he would get skinnier and people would assume it was from cocaine. Are you crazy, Joel, she said. Don't call me crazy. You know exactly what you did and why. The thing was, he had actually asked her to help him lose some weight. She knew there was no way to win the argument, so she gave in and he said he wanted her to fatten him up again. Hedda and Annie, Lisa's minder, had become quite close and when Joel realised this, he started trying to turn Hedda against her. He said she didn't need her anymore as she wasn't working, so they fired her. Another person gone. Joel continued to hit her. She would stay home for a few days, rinse, repeat. One day, he was berating her for never being able to believably and passionately express her feelings. He took her favourite dress and said he was going to rip it down the middle unless she believably asked him not to. She pleaded with him, told him it was her favourite dress. He said he didn't believe her. He ripped the dress. She was horrified. He said they would try again and he grabbed a jacket. Again, he ripped it because her voice had cracked while she pleaded. He ended up destroying a pile of her clothes that day. She was distraught but still believed that he was only trying to help her. She recalled a few years ago how he had ripped up some of her photographs, particularly ones with old boyfriends. He ripped up two books she saved that she loved as a preschooler, books that had been preserved for her since she was a kid. But what he destroyed next really took a piece of her with it. It was a cuff bracelet she had made on a free employee course she had taken when she worked at Teachers College Columbia University right before her job at Random House. Joel knew how much she treasured it. While she begged and pleaded, he crushed the bracelet in his hand. Then came the Tissot watch she had treated herself to after college. He squeezed it with a pair of pliers. She felt so drained, she couldn't plead anymore. Having somebody destroy your property in front of you, like, I know, you know, you can just say, oh, it's just things that can be replaced, whatever. But it is so distressing. Like, I remember one day in particular when my ex just started, like, throwing my shit around the apartment and um he threw my laptop across the room like my shoes clothes like everything and I'm somebody who takes like immense care of my things even if it's just like the smallest of things like I take such good care of myself I always know where my things are I can tell you exactly where anything is um and then to just see somebody who you know, you love and supposedly loves you just destroying yourself for no reason. It's just the most horrible, horrible, horrible feeling. Um, So I can only imagine what she was feeling watching him 
do all of this stuff to torture and torment her. Someone, she guessed a neighbour who had realised she was being abused, called the Bureau of Child Welfare for fear Lisa was also being abused. She was stunned that her secret wasn't so secret. Joel made a big issue of trying to find out who it was, but they weren't that worried as they knew Lisa was well cared for by them. But she still felt anxious on the day of the social worker's visit. The interview was obviously a success as they closed the case. The report said Lisa appeared to have an excellent relationship with her father. This was true. He had never been abusive to her. Joel had also started accusing Hedda of deliberately leaving books and paraphernalia of their drug use out for her parents to find. He started badmouthing her parents and said she couldn't bring them around anymore. So she saw less and less of her family and had no friends and no workmates. She started to come apart. She was misplacing things, forgetting to mail checks and even falling asleep at inappropriate times, even when she was on the phone or walking Lisa in the stroller. She told Joel what was happening. He said she was having a breakdown. He said she should be in an institution. Again, this is something that my ex did to me. Um, saying I was having a breakdown, he tried to get the cops to bring me um, to hospital. Um, just trying to make me out to be crazy when really what was happening was I was just so broken down from his behaviour towards me. Despite her attempts to keep Joel happy at all times, he was never satisfied. He started to threaten to throw her out of the house if her behaviour didn't approve. improve. He ordered her to keep a bag packed at all times. She started thinking about leaving of her own accord and wondered where she would go. One day she even called her dad to pick her up, but by the time he got there, Joel was home. She told him she was leaving him. He said no and hit her. She sprained her ankle on the way down. He ordered her to soak in the bath to take the swelling down. When her dad showed up, she was still in the cold bath and Joel suggested he and her father take Lisa out for ice cream. By the time they got back, the swelling had gone down. She apologised for making him come all that way. Joel continued to tell Hedda that she was the cause of all their problems and that was why he needed to discipline her. He said that he and Lisa would be so much better off without her and so one day she decided to make that true. In spring 1983, when Lisa was two, she left him a note that he could pick Lisa up at Patty's and she walked to the office of an old friend who was her friend and not Joel's. She asked if she could stay with him and his wife for a few days as she had left Joel. He said that she owed Joel more than that and that she couldn't just walk out on him. She could have told him about the abuse, but she wasn't ready for that. He dialed her number and told her she had to speak to Joel. He had just gotten home and he instructed her to do the same. Feeling defeated, she left and tried to convince herself it was for the best. When she got home, Joel merely sighed and shook his head and they had another few days of bliss in the abuse cycle as he didn't want her to leave him. Early in the relationship, it could take months or years to complete a cycle, but as time went on, the cycles got shorter and shorter. Unlike some women who can see when their abuser is getting aggressive, Hedda never knew what to, when to expect a physical attack. One time, she simply handed him the phone and he kicked out behind him, getting her straight in the eye. The force of it knocked her to the floor and her eye bled. Joel's friend, a doctor, was upstairs and he called to him saying Hedda had tripped. He treated her eye, washing it out while urging Joel to take her to the emergency room, but he kept making excuses. Eventually, her eye healed, leaving no scar, and she once again put it down to Joel's healing powers. Despite what was going on at home, Lisa herself was doing really well. She was happy and cheerful, talkative and bright. Joel would repeatedly use the same three names on Hedda. Liar, whore and pig. 
words that he also used to describe her mother. He even insisted that she had come on to him. He cut a picture from the New York Times of a drawing of a fat, grotesque woman and said it looked like Hedda's mother. He hung it in their bedroom and whenever Lisa was misbehaving, he would point at the drawing and say, you don't want to be like the pig, do you? He had also started to prevent Lisa from seeing her grandmother. He had so convinced her that she was a liar and to not have her around. Joel himself called her mother and told her she was a liar and forbade her from returning to their house. Then he handed the phone to Hedda and made her back him up. But despite this, he liked her father and allowed him to visit. One day, Hedda got a call from her father. Her mother had had a stroke. She begged Joel to let her go see her. He told her she was putting herself in danger. He said he would have their doctor friend Al call the hospital to get more information about her condition. Finally, several days later, Joel relented. Her father came and picked her up and Lisa. Thankfully, she healed well with no long-lasting effects. This would be the last time she saw her for five and a half years. One day when her father was due to visit Joel and her, he hit her in the eye again. She panicked, knowing her father was on the way. She was more upset about being found out than she was about being abused. He told her he would heal it and started rubbing it in a circle over and over. When she looked in the mirror, the bruise was gone. Of course, she hadn't even seen one in the first place, but she still gave him credit for getting rid of it. Hedda was not doing well at this point and somehow Joel convinced her she needed a lot of intense time with him. So he sent Lisa to stay with Al and his wife for a few weeks. She can't recall much of those weeks but she remembers limping around on a bad foot after Joel had repeatedly hit her in the foot with a broom claiming the broom had magical powers. She spent one week of this therapy alone as Joel went to visit Lisa without her. She was forbidden from leaving the apartment she was lonely but felt the isolation was part of her therapy. Some truly bizarre occurrences happened during these weeks. He told her Lisa's caretakers, Al and Bonnie, were into hypnosis, that Bonnie was sexually abusing her own son Noah, who was a toddler. She wondered why he had then sent Lisa to them and he said not to worry because he told them they could adopt her and so they wouldn't hurt her. The next week, when Lisa came home, she instantly saw a difference in her. There was a flat look on her usually vibrant face. She wasn't chattering as usual and was withdrawn. She didn't respond when Hedda hugged her. She asked what was wrong. She wouldn't say. When she went to change her diapers, she saw that her genitals were black and blue. When she showed Joel, he said he'd taken care of it with Al, but Al stayed for the evening, comfortably chatting with Joel like nothing had happened. Later, Joel said Al was going to confront Bonnie about it as she was the one who must have done it. He said he was going to take Lisa with him. Hedda was outraged. Joel said Al was going to take great care of her this time, but thankfully he changed his mind and didn't let her go. Joel had installed a speakerphone so all of their phone conversations could be heard. One day, Bonnie called saying Noah, her son, wanted to speak to Lisa. He kept asking her, are you a good girl Lisa over and over which Hedda found very strange. Joel claimed it was a buzz. A buzz being a word or phrase implanted in a subject's consciousness during hypnosis that when repeated would cause the subject to act a certain way. In spite of this theory Lisa didn't seem affected by the words but still remained in the same hypnotic state she had come home in. She begged Joel to help her. He held her for a minute and suddenly she began to smile again and chatter. Again, Hedda praised his healing powers. She embraced them both, but Joel pushed her away. 
It said it didn't work like that and she was still in danger of being buzzed. He even told her the drawings Lisa had brought home with her, which Lisa herself claimed she didn't draw, were sexual images meant to buzz her. Amazingly, Al continued to visit them, but she never again saw Bonnie. Thankfully, Lisa never seemed uneasy when he was around. He began to have Al sit in on Hedda's therapy sessions with Joel. He made her write confessions, the kind of accusations he always made against her and her family. Um, it Just to go back to um, the whole healing power and the whole hypnosis and buzzword thing, like it sounds kind of batshit crazy and it is batshit crazy, but her believing them, it's a lot easier, happens a lot easily than you would think that it would because, I mean, think about, cults for example how many people get taken in by cults um and you know it's just something that it's hard to understand when you're not in it you haven't been through something like this but you are so brainwashed and manipulated and just scared that you you just believe anything that comes out of their mouth so I'm going to read some of the confessions that Hedda had written and that I, you know, can only assume that Joel actually made her write, but she says that she wrote them herself. That's how she's writing them. But, you know, it's very obvious that that he was making her say all these things. So October 1983... I, Hedda Nussbaum, do solemnly swear that on this date I have reviewed my conscience and I have found before God and for the sake of my own soul that I must make the following statement under huge emotional pain and of my own free will. Because of enormous emotional pressure for both my mother and sister, I did give them the following information they wanted specifically for the purposes of destroying Joel and getting him out of the picture so that they could control me and Joel would no longer be able to protect me. 1. I told my sister of the occasional cocaine use by Joel. 2. Passed on similar information to members of my office who disliked me and were in contact with my sister. 3. Provided cocaine and marijuana to my mother and sister, attributing it to Joel. 4. Laid out my own funds to purchase these substances specifically for their needs. 5. Introduced cocaine to this household and scattered vials around in hiding places for the sole purpose of providing evidence for them. 6. Displayed test tubes used to cook freebase to her mother and father and sister. 7. Deliberately allowed my father to catch me cooking what could have been freebase in such a tube. 8. Providing them with a view of a book titled Cocaine. She also was made to swear that Joel used no drugs of any sort and that she fostered the image of drugs for both her and Joel by doing the following. 1. Practically starving Joel on a low-calorie diet so he looked thin. 2. Awakening him night so he had little sleep. 3. Deliberately and selectively falling asleep on the phone. 4. Falling asleep in the supermarket and the street. 5. Deliberately sounding sleepy. 6. Deliberately sounding like I have a cold. 7. Overstating my funds to my family and then deliberately exhausting my funds, creating the impression Joel had spent it on drugs, when in fact Joel had made all his assets available to me and provided constant love and care. In addition, I deliberately produced bruises and other symptoms on my person of beatings, mostly through accidents induced by great pressure from my mother and sister. 
I also produced screaming that was totally unprovoked and at times occurred when no one else was in the room to sound like I was being beaten and then prominently displayed myself to neighbours, friends, etc. I hope that this statement, albeit incomplete, will lead me from the path that they have maintained for me throughout my life. Um, so yeah, um, just, you know, wild and again trying to turn all the abuse onto her. I remember my ex um, hearing that he had told, uh, you know, he, he visited Ireland while I was here in New York and he went to, I think it was a wedding, and he told everybody there that I was really depressed and that I was taking drugs and I was out of control and yada, yada, yada. Um, so it's just something that they do to make it seem like you're the crazy one and not them. Directly under Hedda's statement is one signed by Alan Gross, MD. I observed Hedda Nussbaum at her request at the time she wrote this document and signed it and found her to be extremely stable, sincere, concerned and pained by the realisations that she had to encounter and under no duress or inducement. He goes on to say that he's known her for a long time and was familiar with her behaviour. Clearly, Hedda wasn't the only one being controlled by Joel. One day, Al came over to take one of Joel's so-called therapy sessions. They went much like Hedda's, where he had to write things down in a confession. After Hedda had put Lisa to bed, Joel told her Al had confessed under hypnosis that Hedda had had sex with over 100 men. Al confessed to Joel that one day when he and Hedda were alone together, he had come on to her and then hit her when she rejected him. Hedda knew this had never happened before. Joel instructed Hedda to slap Al. She did several times. Joel later that night did something to Al that he claimed he had learned from the military. He repeatedly stuck his fingers in Al's eye sockets, which Al surprisingly didn't seem to feel. The next morning, he had two black eyes. After that day, they never saw Al or Bonnie again. Apparently, Al even had to have surgery on his eye sockets. I have just had a major meltdown for the last few hours. I somehow lost all the episode audio. I spent hours trying to get it back. Thankfully, I just got it back. Oh my goodness. <sighs> and breeze. So anyways, that was part one of the story of Hedda Nussbaum. I'm going to bring you part two next week. I did want to pack it all into one episode because there's a lot of information and it gets really, really dark. And it was just a lot for me to record and it's going to be a lot for you to listen to. So let's just split it up into two episodes. So once again, go to my Patreon, check out all those new membership tiers. Contact me on at Mangogs on all social media if you want to reach out. Once again, thehotline.org if you need any help. And I will see you all next week. Take care.